Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. The biannual cycle of American politics has passed its midterm point and is barely posing for the holiday season. The bitterly fought Senate, House of Representatives and state elections did not provide for a clear winner in the contest between Democrats and Republicans. To analyze what's next for U.S. governance and the policies to be expected from the administration, limited by Congress and its anticipation of 2024, Joining us to analyze this all the way from Madrid, Spain, is Dr. Rafael Barragio, who is the CEO of Worldwide Strategy and former National Security Advisor. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, indeed, and uh, also joining us from elsewhere here in Jerusalem is Mr. Robert Silverman, who is a lecturer at Shalem College and former president of the American Foreign Service Association. Thank you for joining us as well. Thank you. And... With us here in the studio is our TV7 editor-at-large, host of Watchmen Talk, Powers in Play, and so much more, Mr. Amir Oren. Amir, give us some insight as to what is to be expected uh, in uh, your perspective with regard to the United States now that uh, the midterms has come and gone. So national security and foreign policy issues were not at the <laughs> forefront of the uh, campaign here. First of all, because it was not a presidential race, but uh, it was um, a series, hundreds of uh, local races at various levels. And obviously, the economy and the social or societal issues uh, were most dear to the uh, voters' uh, hearts. But the outcome will, of course, have an impact on national security and uh, foreign policy. And because of the lack of um, the uh, concentration of these issues during the campaign, one cannot say that there is a clear mandate for any new policy or any continuation of an old policy in these uh, regards. And therefore, there will be, uh, to my mind, uh, two important aspects. The first one, is whether the uh, president's attention span, and I I don't mean literally because uh, at times uh, there has been a question regarding his um, acuity at least, Um, but whether among all of the uh, uh, topics that he has to take care of, whether he Mm -hmm. will have uh, the uh, time and energy to focus on uh, foreign policy. And the second one is how the Republicans will react to initiatives by the um, uh, administration, or whether we will see a series of responses, first by the administration to foreign crisis, and then by the Republicans in Congress to what the administration uh, comes up with. This is the first uh, dimension. And the other one, of course, is the 2024 race and the question, um, part of which we will know shortly, uh, of whether Donald Trump is running again. We will not know soon whether Biden is running for re-election. Um, if he does not, who is his hair apparent? Hair rather than Harris. Doesn't 
uh, mean that uh, his vice president uh, would necessarily be the uh, Democratic nominee. So a series of questions, a series of question marks, and the midterm elections did not leave us with any clear exclamation mark. Indeed. Uh, Dr. Bardahi, I'd like to hear your point on uh, the midterms, but also, as Mr. Owen noted, there was no clear um, indications of the, the uh, Biden administration or the Democrat Party as a whole of any change in course of their current foreign policy that hasn't been very successful, to say the least, uh, at least from an, a foreign observer. Uh, what can you tell us on the expectations, therefore, of what we're expecting to see in the next two to four years? Well, I think uh, this night was critical to understand what America may or may not do in the next two years. I think the House can be declared for a tiny majority of the Republican candidates, which uh, may bring all the attention of the American administration <coughs> to domestic issues more than foreign policy. I think the Republican Party traditionally will try to stop all the spending spree that has been given generously by Biden administration and control a little bit more of the fight against inflation and unemployment and other, and other domestic issues. So uh, I think in that sense, we will see a, a, a refocusing on, on internal and domestic questions. Also, there is the, 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 mark, the question mark of who is going to run from the, the Republican Party. Uh, as far as I know, and I see it in the provisional results, the candidate that has been supported by pres former President Trump didn't fare very well. So that may affect his willingness to run again or not. It's an open question, we will see. But all in all, I think uh, the midterms bring back to domestic issues uh, the country more than to foreign policy agenda. Indeed, Mr. Silverman, uh, I'd like to hear your perspective on this also as the only American in this panel currently, so that would be also beneficial. But uh, moreover, are we expecting uh, to see a certain uh, boost to the isolationist school of thought uh, in which America would uh, seek to retract itself from the international stage as much as possible, uh, despite the fact that we are in an age of strategic competition vis-a-vis -vis China, vis-a-vis -vis Russia and others? I don't think so, Jonathan. I think the results, as others have said, are, are pretty balanced. And uh, I'll give you concrete examples of, of uh, two cases that I think are bellwethers. But let me just say uh, that I think now with this result, with the Republicans taking the House of Representatives, that in fact, the Biden administration will look more to foreign policy to achieve results in the last two years of its uh, term, because it won't be able to pass legislation through the House. Uh, the Republicans control the House. Uh, and so traditionally in this situation, when uh, the you know president is unable to pass legislation, they focus more on foreign policy where the president has more plenary authority to get things done. So I think we can look for more activism. Uh, rather than less on foreign policy in the last uh, two years of this term. I would say that the results were a victory for Biden, given the expectations that there would be a red wave. And many polls showed that there were going to be a red wave. There was not a red wave. Uh, uh, Biden um, held on to many seats, both in the House and the Senate, uh, that were close. 
So let me help Amir Oren, our friend Amir Oren. Biden is running. He's going to be the Democratic nominee for president. He, it is very rare. Uh, I cannot even think of a time when uh, uh, an incumbent president was defeated uh, in, in trying to run for a second term. Even Jimmy Carter, who you know had a much uh, more difficult time in many ways than Biden, defeated uh, challengers in 1980. In fact, Ted Kennedy, he defeated to to uh, be, become his party's nominee for a second term. So Biden is running. He is likely the Democratic nominee. I agree with Amir that the, all the focus now turns to 2024. Uh, on, the Demi on the Republican side, I, as I think Raphael mentioned, um, uh, Trump, some of Trump's candidates did not win. Trump chose a lot of celebrity type candidates, this TV doctor, uh, Mehmet Oz, who had he won, by the way, very interestingly, would have been the first uh, Muslim member of the U.S. Senate, but he lost. Uh, and so uh, some of these candidates that were specifically Trump ch uh, choices have lost. So I think that means that the, some of the Republicans who were thinking of getting into the race might think that Trump is slightly weakened his hold on the party. You might see Ron DeSantis uh, running in 2024. So the focus moves to 2024. Um, I do think I, I will just close by mentioning two uh, specific races that I think uh, explain a lot. In Virginia, which is a bellwether state, it really is what they call a purple state. It's half Democratic, half Republican. In 2018, two young women won seats, both Democrats, both very similar backgrounds. Abigail Spanberger, who was a former CIA intelligence officer, uh, won a seat in the uh, northern suburbs of Richmond, a district that formerly had been held by um, Mr. Cantor, uh, who had been a majority speaker of the House and probably the most uh, uh, powerful uh, Jewish member of Congress ever, uh, up until Chuck Schumer. But she she uh, took his uh, district and and, and she won again. And she's a very moderate pro-Israel um, Democrat. She defeated her Republican challenger. On the other hand, also in Virginia, also a young woman who had uh, won in 2018, uh, Elaine Luria, who had been a Navy commander, and she uh, and was uh, representing the District of Norfolk, Virginia, which is a major naval base, major military site, a very big uh, military uh, voter place. She lost. Uh, she was another moderate Democrat. She's Jewish, in fact, uh, Elaine Luria, and is very pro-Israel um, Democrat. She lost to a Republican challenger. And what was the difference in these two races? One big difference was that the district of the winner, uh, Abigail Spanberger, had been changed. The voting district is decided by the states. And the, the voting district for Abigail Spanberger uh, favored the Republicans, and the one for in Norfolk for Elaine Luria also favored the Republicans because the Republicans um, have a uh, you know the state house in Virginia. So, in addition to everything happening on the federal level, um, in these midterms were 50 different state races, and they also affect the federal mm -hmm. government, because it's the states that define the voting districts, and they can change it to favor certain constituencies 
And that really helped explain the difference between Abigail Spanberger winning and um, Elaine Luria losing. So well, it's a complicated picture. Plenty of technicalities indeed. Nevertheless, when we do look at uh, the expectations of uh, the Republicans uh, prior to this midterm, uh, I, I communicated with both Republicans and Democrats. Everybody was communicating uh, the same or was echoing what the media was uh, narrating time and uh, again, that the Democrats are in a free fall. Uh, because of the energy crisis, because of uh, the highest uh, rises in inflation and so on and so forth. And yet, it seems like the, the scare campaign, which was obviously motivated, uh, seemed to have worked. Many Democrats went out and voted in favor of the Democrat Party, despite the failures of their representatives. Well, regardless of uh, what you call scare campaign, because you can say that in uh, especially southern states, Republicans tried to limit voting, especially by ethnic uh, voters. Uh, so uh, leaving aside... Allegedly. Uh, yes, of course, what you say is a fact and what I say is uh, Absolutely. allegedly. Um, <laughs> But, but that's that's um, the hierarchy here. Yeah? You call the shots, and uh, who knows, maybe this comment will be excised from uh, the show. Well, we counterbalance each other. Go <laughs> yes, ahead, and, and actually this was going to be my point regarding the American political uh, system or the system of government. It has a self-correcting mechanism against excess. Um, it favors the moderate, middle-of-the-road, conservative, not necessarily Republican, but conservative approach in which, of course, you have the executive vis-a-vis -vis the legislative. In the legislative, the Senate uh, versus the House. The federal level versus state, state, county, city, all of that. In addition, you have two, the two parties. But now, within those parties, you also have some uh, fusion. Because in the Democratic Party, you have the so-called progressives, you have the, the uh, extreme left, and in the Republican Party, you have the Trumpist wing versus other Republicans, um, which um, uh, Trump and others call rhino, Republicans in name only, uh, because uh, they are more akin to uh, right-wing Democrats. This used to be the bipartisan, uh, of course, basis for foreign policy uh, ever since 1947 or so, with Senator Vandenberg, the former isolationist Republican, helping Secretary of State Marshall and President Truman. So now you cannot base any foreign policy on real political infrastructure. And the fact that the Senate controls foreign policy, treaties and the like, while the House controls the power of the purse, um, taxation and spending will make it very hard for any administration to back up its policies with money. Because it doesn't matter if um, uh, you have great speeches and uh, promises, if um, you can't uh, fund it. So um, it will be a mess or a free-for-all. Indeed. Well, uh, Dr. Baradaghi, I'd like to uh, ask you about a concrete issue. There was uh, uh, much talk about uh, the fact that after the midterm elections, the Biden administration is expected 
uh, to try and revive the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the 2015 nuclear agreement with Iran, uh, something that obviously uh, uh, the many uh, Biden administration uh, officials that I communicated with were denying. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it was a, a uh, sort of uh, expected move uh, from the Biden administration. Uh, now with the, the shift uh, in the various uh, balances within the, the House of Representatives and, and Senate, of course, uh, are we to expect a, a change in that uh, um, maneuver or are we expected to see something uh innovative, as uh, President Macron said uh, earlier in, in COP27 this week. Yeah, I think I think uh, the, the administration is divided. Uh, there are some high-ranked officials that are still pushing for reaching an agreement, whatever the price uh, or the kind of or nature of agreement with uh, the Iranians' uh, leadership. Uh, but we have to bear in mind that even beyond the, the results of the midterm, there are two objective factors nowadays that makes it more difficult, according to my opinion. One is that demonstrators are still in the streets in, 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 in Iran, and the repression is evident. And uh, reaching an agreement today under the, those domestic conditions uh, will open up a lot of criticism for whoever uh, sit down with Ayatollahs to, to sign any paper. Second, uh, and also very important is the uh, progressive involvement of Iran in the, in the help of Russia in, in Ukraine. We have seen the drones and some trainers and some, uh, uh, even some movement of troops from, uh, from Syria as well. No? Uh, that makes a, as a different equation uh, of Iran. No? And uh, even if the administration would like to reduce the chances through a good agreement uh, on the nuclear program, the the conditions nowadays I think preclude any movement uh, in the short term. But I may be wrong. I maybe there are two separate portfolios, and they consider that there is no linkage whatsoever to the foreign uh, attitude and, and, and presence of Iran, and uh, and the people who has uh, invested so much in, in in the GCPOA, which is now in the administration, may would like to revive uh, a, a bad agreement. Uh, it's an open question, sincerely. I don't have the answer yet. We have to wait, I'm afraid. Indeed. Mr. Silverman, uh, President uh, Biden came out uh, as part of the midterm uh, election pledges that he did voice. And one of them was about freeing Iran, uh, something that later the White House and his staff, of course, and, and the State Department doubled down on, uh, something that uh, the Iranian counterpart of, of President Biden, uh, Ibrahim Raisi, namely, uh, actually said either he's uh, um, absent a mind or he doesn't realize that uh, uh, Iran has been free in his perspective, of course, since 1979 when the Islamic Revolution took uh -huh. place. Uh, right. To what degree do you see this actually uh, materialize uh, when uh, the president says one thing, the uh, uh, his staff says something else, the State Department says something else. Uh, is there a clear policy that is spearheaded by the incumbent president? It's a great question, Jonathan. I mean, we see this in other contexts, too. For instance, in Taiwan, uh, Biden has several times said when asked, uh, would the U.S. come to the defense of Taiwan? He says, yes. It was very clear in his administration uh, uh, later clarified to, you know, what the real policy is. 
he's the president and in foreign policy the president has plenary authority and the ability to uh, declare things uh, i think that was a misspoken uh, statement by biden i know people uh, including as you noted uh, uh, the uh, iranian regime have reacted to it but it, let's see if if he did what he did on Taiwan, which is doubled down on his statement, which is at odds with the administration's declared policy. We are not about regime change in Iran. Uh, that that has been the Biden policy. So if that changes, he, he's going to have to re-clarify it. But um, look, they they don't have a credible military option that, that, that they are preparing. So um, it does look like uh, when the protests die down, if they do die down, that they would be back at the negotiating table. Uh, but I agree with Rafael that uh, at present, it's hard to see them going back to the negotiations table in, in Vienna when there are people being massacred in the streets of, of Tehran, you know, and, and uh, they're not going to do that. They they recall very well the Biden people in 2009 and, and when there was another revolution and a potential revolution in Iran, the Green Revolution, and the Obama people ignored it and, and got criticized for it. So while the protests are going on, I think they're going to uh, stay back and, and see what happens. Um, there is, as Raphael noted, also the Ukraine aspect, which which would potentially give Biden an opportunity to to shift course on Iran and say, hey, you know, now they're supporting uh, another uh, bad player and we can't have that. But of course, they their standard response to that then in the Biden administration is that the nuclear file is different. You know, we can. We can address their support for Putin. We can address their support for terrorism in the Middle East, while at the same time negotiating a nuclear deal. Indeed. And so uh, I think they would retake that position when the street protests die down, as apparently they might. And, and again, uh, the GCPOA doesn't require Congress. It's not even an executive agreement. It's a um, plan of action, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. So. Uh, Congress's view on it, which is negative, bipartisan Democrats, Republicans don't like this deal, uh, has not stopped the administration in the past. They have the ability to sign it if they, if and when they want to. Uh, unless there is, of course, a, two th a third majority against them, which then uh, thwarts the president's ability to proceed. Uh, uh, Mr. Owen? Uh, Joe Biden uh, has been a long-serving member of the Senate including the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee. And the senator uh, obviously speaks in a different fashion than the commander-in-chief. The habit stuck. And even when he was vice president for eight years, uh, there was no responsibility, no burden on his shoulders. And apparently he did not kick this habit. And uh, he said, yes, free Iran. But his national security strategy, a document which was staffed thoroughly uh, for many months, for almost two years, and was released only a few weeks ago, specifically says, we are not out for regime change. 
neither in Iran nor any uh, other place. Moreover, plan A is diplomacy, plan B is diplomacy, plan C is diplomacy, and yes, so on and but, so but, forth. But in any event, um, uh, even though the commander-in-chief can issue any order, in order for it to be followed, there has to be uh, staff work and preparations. And so um, we remember what he said about uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. And then he uh, went out and met him uh, because this was the practical uh, thing to do. So um, it's really free Biden rather than free Iran. Indeed. Well, um, we're drawing near to the end of the program, and I'd just like uh, to to raise a quote by um, uh, the late president, George Washington, in uh, uh, September 17, 1796, when he actually uh, made his farewells to, to the position in the White House. He said, however, political parties may now and then answer popular ends, they are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be uh, enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp uh, for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Uh, of course, these are very alarming, uh, a very alarming uh, warning to the American people, uh, and we are uh, several hundred years after. Uh, nonetheless, uh, we hear more and more on both sides accusations of this taking root. Is the the American electorate um, able to to come to terms with the fact that uh, the opposition of uh, whoever uh, side they may be on uh, may be in power, and as such, also provide the necessary backing for a clear foreign policy? Dr. Baldachi? Well, uh, up to now, we, none of us mentioned the magic word of polarization. I think uh, the midterm elections show again that the country, America, is totally polarized. And even worse, I think uh, both parties, Democrats and Republicans, believe that polarization is good for them. So I don't see any, any way out of this dilemma. Secondly, I think uh, uh, this mentality of uh, wokeism uh, has permeated uh, many institutions of uh, the United States and, the, and the apparatus from the Pentagon to the State Department that make it even more difficult uh, for a reliable, consistent, coherent, traditional foreign policy of America and the world. No? Link that to the economic situation and the temptation to withdraw from many problems, I think uh, we are going to see the same trend that we have been seeing in the past, this progressive disengagement from many areas, and, uh, and uh, I'm more focused on economic uh, than geostrategic issues, I'm afraid. Indeed. Uh, one sentence, uh, Mr. Silverman, unfortunately we're out of time. I think despite uh, polarization and a lot of uh, press, now that the Republicans have the House, there is a consensus and there is the ability to have a um, solid, comprehensive, coherent foreign policy. Indeed. Well, this is all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank Dr. Barrahi, uh, Mr. Silverman, and Mr. Olin for being part of today's uh, panel. And I'd like to thank our viewers as well. And we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.